Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Leaving Tassajara, a line of cars loaded one direction, another in the opposite. Wouldn't it be more efficient to swap directions? I went into a deli with some of the other newly former monks on the drive from Tassajara to San Francisco and for the first time realized how silly background music was, music for not listening to. I flew back to Austin from San Francisco. Almost everybody I met in markets, on streets, on the airplane seemed on the point of either rage or tears, remorselessly restless to distraction or else all smiles trying to sell me something. How did people get to be like that? During the last month of my residency at Tassajara, Bush had invaded Iraq to create a neoliberal paradise, and I had just missed a massive Buddhist Peace Fellowship-sponsored walking meditation for peace in Austin. The world outside the monastery gates was flat-out, wall-to-wall, careeningly fast-lane bonkers. The masses of humanity live in a looking-glass world. What was I to do? I was going to do the most sane thing I could think of to do with my life, to return to the calm of the Austin Zen Center, to continue my life of quiet reflection of study to find ways to benefit the world and to serve the Austin Zen Center community to teach and to help Buddhism take root in America. What else might make any sense? Not long after this, a large crowd had assembled in the Zendo for a dual ordination that featured me and Colin. Barbara had indicated she would like ordain me by mail while I was at Tassajara. Colin and I formed the core of a procession from the founder's altar upstairs to the zendo, reciting a single line in praise of the Buddha repeatedly to drum roll-downs and bells. We were wearing simply tailored gray kimonos. I would learn that the kimono is considered in Japan to be equivalent to underwear. You would not appear in one in public, but there we were symbolically pristine and unencumbered. We both formally bowed to the teacher to begin the ceremony. To share this important step in my life, I had invited my mother, who had flown from San Francisco, and my three kids, who had taken the bus down from Springfield, Missouri. Kimry was now 22 years old. Warren, 19, and Alma would turn 16 the day after this ordination, and my mom was uh, pretty old. I had also invited Linda, the girlfriend I had left behind, almost a year and a half earlier when I had entered 
Sahara. Colin and I had been required to sit in meditation for about three hours in a room upstairs from the Zendo prior to the ceremony to prepare our minds for this momentous step that would change everything after which our heads had been shaved. We had bathed and we had put on said kimonos. I had had a chance to see my family in the upstairs hall after my sudden hair loss, and the kids had wanted to rub my shorn head, which they had expected to feel like rubber. Linda had suddenly appeared from the room where my mom was staying and had shrieked in surprise at my shiny new look. The ceremony traditionally involves giving the candidates a lot of stuff, most of which are one by one ritually perfumed by adding a pinch of chip incense to a burning kubaku. Touching the item to the forehead and passing it over the ensuing puff of smoke before passing it on to the candidate with two hands giving and two hands receiving. Given to each of us were black tailored karomo, which sleeves so large that they will drag on the floor if the tired monk's arms begin to sag, and so voluminous that they can easily scoop up furniture, pets, and small children as the monk moves about. We were given the monk's robes that we had sewn ourselves. At Tassajara, there had been material thread, table scissors, chalk, space, and instructors already at hand in the cold mountains. I had sewed on my robe during every break and during sewing class an hour each morning in which the priest aspirants were allowed to miss a period of zazen in order to sew in the dining hall. I had sewed for months. We also received rakasu, priests' orioki bowls, bowing cloth, and certificate of ordination called a bloodline, which fixes the new priest into a lineage beginning with the Buddha, passing through the long line of ancestors through Barbara and to the respective one of us. We dressed incrementally as priests during the course of the ceremony as we received new gear to wear. Since the clothes were so unfamiliar, a priest already experienced in the ways of traditional garb stood behind each of us ready to assist. The previous fall there had been a mishap in Jim's ordination in that the strap that holds the okesa in place had been sewn on the wrong surface of the okesa so that it could not be properly tied. For our ordination, everything went smoothly except that words failed me that I should have committed more thoroughly to memory in the few days after returning from Tassajara. We were also each given a Dharma name. I had expected that Barbara would retain my lay ordination name, Kotaku Hosen, Vast Virtue Free River. But she changed one syllable, producing Kojin Hosen, Vast Compassion Free River. I would often tell people afterwards that Barbara 
had discovered that I was not so virtuous after all, but that I meant well. People would now gradually, with time, call me Kojin instead of John, mostly through attrition, since rarely did someone who had known me before ever get used to my new name. Six years later, they would have the challenge of yet another new name. One of the remarkable things about the priest ordination is that the actual vows are no different from those undertaken with jukai, lay ordination. The question, what is a priest, had been my koan for the last months, and now it became all the more pressing. In fact, the only substantial formal differences between priest and lay ordination are that the ordinee in the former case undertakes a much larger craft project, has to learn to wear a lot more clothes, and is honored with more ceremonial fanfare. The lay ordinee even receives the same bloodline as the priest ordinee. Flint had once called priesthood cloth management. The robes were difficult enough to wear and to keep neat, but also robes had to be properly folded and unfolded. To put the robe on, it is first placed on the head. It is then grasped by two folded corners so that with a quick motion it can be unfolded and wrapped around the body. The bowing cloth drapes, believe it or not, evenly over the right wrist, tucked under the karomo sleeve meaning the right hand can never be lowered until the cloth is removed. The drooping sleeve would drag on the floor in any case, that is, if the wearer managed to avoid stepping on it, thereby dashing himself headlong onto the floor. The bowing cloth is wielded by grasping two corners with proper fingers of both hands, pulling them apart and laying the cloth on the ground with a quick motion that produces a fold in the middle. The colored side always appears miraculously on top. The core principle of priestcraft is, in short, to appear as a wizard on the body of which new layers of clothing appear or disappear, and from the body of which the bowing cloth extends and contracts as precisely as a frog's tongue. All this executed almost instantaneously with barely any more effort than a flick of the wrist. It would take me about a year just to wear and wrangle all this stuff with even minimal proficiency. For now, it was a challenge just to keep it on until the end of the ceremony, even with the assistant at hand. And it was slapstick to extend my bowing cloth, get it placed on the floor more or less properly, and then do complete bows as I entangled myself in sleeves and felt my okasa easing off my shoulder. Finally, the audience was allowed to make congratulatory remarks to the two heaps of wardrobe, out of the top of which Collins and my bald heads appeared. My mother had been asked the previous day to prepare a statement ahead of time, but it kept asking me what she should say. 
She had a master's degree in English and was a former actress, so I had no doubt she would come up with something eloquent, as indeed she would. Yet I had composed the following for her as a backup. Ever since Johnny was an odd little boy, he was always into one strange thing after another. But I have to say, this really takes the cake. However, she would not make use of my material. I had also encouraged the kids to make some remarks, but did not suspect they would. Various zenies recounted how they were always inspired by Collins or by my or by both of our steady practice. However, a number of new people had no idea who I was since I had just returned from almost a year and a half at Tassajara, nor why I had presumed to insinuate myself into their cozy community from a distant valley in another state. Colin's girlfriend recounted at length how they had first met on the phone when she had dialed up Austin Zen Center, then how he had, on her first visit to Austin Zen Center, exhibited uncannily Zenish intuitive powers and then ended up by proclaiming her love for him. Her sharing fit eye-rollingly into my still incubating concept of what Zen priesthood was about, and I was glad the normally loquacious Linda was now respectfully reticent. Alma finally raised her hand and gave a little congratulatory speech that ended with, Way to go, Dad! Privately, Barbara told Colin and me, on this auspicious day, something wise that I would keep in mind in the years to come. A priest is someone who does special things. He is not a special person. Finally, something that makes sense, kinda. My task, as I understood it, was completely to fill the role of priesthood, to learn the craft, the rituals, to wear the clothes, to serve the community, to enter the Buddha's way unreservedly, and with permission, eventually, to teach. It was not to assume yet another identity. It was not to become someone, special or otherwise. It was, on the contrary, to become no one, to empty myself of self, to evict little Johnny from the apartment once and for all. This was direction aplenty for my life. Dogen once put it this way, Empty inside, following along outside. Embarking from the Zen Center at 4.30 in the morning, 30 totally silent Zennies proceeded single file to roam the back streets of Austin with some rustling of robes and with some bald heads bouncing along. A car passed us, then screeched to a halt, then backed up even with the head of the group. A head popped out of the window. What are you doing? A significant event every year was Rohatsu Sashin, according to tradition held in the first week of December to celebrate 
the Buddha is sitting for seven days under the Bodhi tree, then seeing the morning star and attaining awakening. Each year on the final morning of the seven-day Sashin, after at least a couple of hardy and inspired practitioners had made a final push by sitting Zazen through the final night and the rest of us had simply arisen particularly early, we assembled in the morning to reenact the Buddha's awakening by filing out of the Zendo at 4.30 in the morning to seek the morning star. What were we doing? Austin is a city that eschews mediocrity, living up to the slogan, Keep Austin Weird, ubiquitous on bumper stickers, t-shirts, and coffee mugs. It has never had a strong market for chain stores and restaurants, but has long had a thriving counterculture to such a degree that one would be hard put to identify who represents the counter and who represents the conventional culture. Austin is quite proud of its diversity. I tried for a while to promote in our Zen Center public relations the use of the slogan, doing our part to keep Austin weird. I suppose that was what we were doing. I had always felt we added color to Austin, black. Zen Center's next-door neighbor, Anne, once remarked about the experience of living in our presence. Every day seems like Halloween. I would live at the Austin Center for almost six years. It was a rich environment in which to live, practice, teach, and serve. It entailed a life of discipline, a relentless meditation schedule, which, at regular intervals, escalated into seshin, a life of stillness and introspection with daily interactions with interesting people, but mostly ample time for study and for falling back on my own inner resources, a life of resolve, of around-the-clock commitment to pursuing the Buddha's way, and a life of reflection and insight as the fruits of practice grew within me. I was grateful for this opportunity to live and practice in this rare environment. <laughs> 